Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me is Cameron. Yep. Uh, you know, normally I have a bit here, like a little funny thing, mm-hmm. but we got to get down to brass tacks. Okay? Oh no, the guards are invading, and now you're being kept in the needle, Cameron. Nope. I will not, uh, what, what is it that Tommy Lee Jones said? I will not co-sign this tomfoolery. I, I will not sanction your your buffoonery i think that's right i will not <laughs> sanction this buffoonery okay i read this whole book thinking it was a science fiction novel oh no because what would a book called the eyes of dr agon be mm-hmm. if not a science fiction novel and i read this whole thing there's like wizards and shit there's like a whole there's swords there's like burping dudes and farting guys and booger eating <laughs> A whole lot of uh, that. Kings, a whole lot of that. And Dr. Aegon didn't show up a single time. So I'm going to need a little explainer here from from a, a doctor of literature or whatever mm-hmm. that means. Tell, is this a metaphor? I mean, what? Kind of sounds on. like you didn't finish the book. L- allow me to read for you the, the final lines here. Uh, <clears throat> Peter ruled long and well. And Thomas and Dennis had many and strange adventures, and they did find Dr. Aegon eventually and confronted him. But now the hour is late, and all of that is another tale for another day. All right, I have a confession to make. Okay. I only read the first 16 pages. Ah, there you go. Classic amateur mistake. It's the exact Mm. sort of thing they teach you not to do in grad school for literature. Uh. Well, BRB, gotta go pay a hundred grand <laughs> to learn how to read. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Uh, yeah, so uh, today we're talking about uh, Eyes of Dr. Aegon uh, yeah. from 1984. You would have liked it if it were the Eyes of Dr. Aegon, I bet. <laughs> Probably. That's the Gene Wolfe stuff I want. The Island of Dr. Death. The Death of Dr. Island. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that good stuff. Uh, yeah, it's Eyes of the Dragon, folks. Uh, yep. Why are you? Why are you? Why are you going? Ugh. Because this is a fantasy novel, Cameron. <laughs> it's not just a fantasy novel. It's like a fantasy ass fantasy novel. Mm-hmm. And you like, know what I mean? There's no. You can't wiggle your way out of it. And uh, uh, a very particular type of fantasy novel, if you've read fantasy primarily from maybe the past uh, 20, 25 years, uh, it is a very different flavor, right? Pre sort of Neil Gaiman, pre J.K. Rowling fantasy novels uh, have a vibe to them. And this is that all over. Yeah, they were good. Yes, (laughs) 
Is that is that what you're saying? They were good? <laughs> sure. Back then? Sure. That's what I'll say. The other thing about this novel is it is a sort of young adult fantasy novel parentheses multiple mm-hmm. co- question marks uh because there's st- i'm gonna say unequivocally it's a young adult novel yeah now whether everything in it is appropriate for young adults is a big question mark uh-huh and that i think that you're leaning into but i'm going to say in a broad general sense easily no question in my mind young adult mm-hmm uh, and it is therefore uh, a lot lighter and goofier in many ways than I think uh, a lot of contemporary fantasy, uh, even in the young adult space, is expected to be. Um, there is something uh, I, mean, I mean, it is uh, on the whole closer to a genuine fairy tale uh, mm-hmm. than what we think yeah. of as like uh, uh, literature right being written today. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. It is a, uh, it it has the cadence and the, the form of a fairy tale, and it very explicitly has like a narrator doing the narration, mm-hmm. um, and, and like being very fourth wally about it, mm-hmm. um, you know, constantly referring to our world, uh, and you know the differences between our world and their world, and you know never really gets down to brass tacks about like, well, how does this narrator know this story or anything like that? Mm-hmm. Um, is much more about play. It's it's very playful in that way, mm-hmm. um, and feels a lot like the Princess Bride, mm-hmm. the Neverending Story, uh, those kinds of things. So I was actually just looking to see because you were talking about the kind of differences between this story and, and kind of the shape of fantasy today, which I do agree is, is quite different kind of post uh, Harold Potter explosion and all that kind of stuff. But in the Gandalf books, of course, mm-hmm. uh, and their, their uh, movies, but mm-hmm. so, I, but I was looking, you know, a thing that happens in fantasy fiction, if people don't know about this, um, you know, there's a fantasy explosion that happens in the 1970s in the United States. Fantasy as a genre was uh, not nearly as, um, I don't know, uh, present or, uh, now we have fantasy and science fiction as kind of two comparably large genres in the U S that was not always the case. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was the 1960s and 1970s publication of the Lord of the Rings in the U S that kind of, um, explodes that. And, uh, in particular, you know, a, a kind of landmark text that comes after that is the sword of Shannara. Yes. The, the Terry Brooks uh, book that is, uh, I look, I don't want to be mean to Terry Brooks here, but it's the Lord of the Rings ripoff, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it is kind of like a, it's someone reading the Lord of the Rings and kind of just doing that, but additionally, although they get, they get way weirder than the Lord of the Rings, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, they're extremely bizarre. Did you ever read uh, 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 Terry Brooks's, his basically his Stephen King novels? Yeah, the, the running with the demon. Yes, the night of the word series. Yeah, yeah, those yeah, are those are word. interesting too. <laughs> those are. And did you know they're all part of the same world? Yes, <laughs> of course I did, Cameron. Right? It's his dark tower. <laughs> it is. It is his dark tower. And, and what if it was the dark tower was everything you ever wrote, literally? Yes. Um, and also, what if your fantasy world was a post-apocalyptic future? Mm-hmm. Uh, there, yeah, there's all kinds of wild stuff going in there. So when I say the word ripoff, I don't really mean that as an insult. It's clearly someone the sort of Shinara. And that those first two or three books are, you know, clearly someone working through their kind of interpretation of Tolkien alia and then 
really going somewhere else mm-hmm. um, uh, in a really cool way with it. Right. I mean, one of the early books is the Elf Stones of Shannara. Mm-hmm. The Elf Stones are basically Silmarils. It's, it's not subtle. But that's all to say. The reason I say that is that uh, I was looking up when the Sword of Shannara was published. It's 1977. And so... This book is, when is this, Michael? When is Lies of the Dragon? 85, 86? Uh, so it's published uh, sort of initially in 84, and I'll get into kind of the publishing history of this one in a little bit because it's a, it's another kind of strange one. Um, but I would say King probably starts writing it in 83 or 84. Gotcha. So it is it is as that wave of uh, fantasy stuff is kind of sweeping the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, this this definitely feels like Stephen King dipping into that world. And we already know that he's done that. That's what The Stand is, right? The mm-hmm. Stand is his kind of swing at very similar kinds of uh, big conceptual ideas, even if it's not literally a fantasy work. And, and this, to me, feels the same way. This is, what if The Hobbit... You know, what if Stephen King wrote his version of The Hobbit? Yes. And I, and I don't mean in, like, you know, literally the, the kind of characters, but the character types. In in a pit in the floor, there existed a jobbit. <laughs> Occasionally, the jobbit would fall asleep and have dreams about things that would, would, would happen, but they were fantasy dreams and not science fiction dreams. In any case, the, this whole kind of thing in tone and feeling is like, what if everyone in the world was a hobbit? And and what if everyone had like one line of desire? Yes. And, and that line of desire uh, could enter into like complications but they're not complicated people. You know, they're, they're very, everyone in this is two dimensional mm-hmm. um, in a really kind of flat way. And I don't, I don't mean any of that as criticism. I, you know, I, I think we'll probably get into it, but I was a uh, big question mark going into this about how I would find it. And uh, I actually really enjoyed this novel. Now, does that have to do with the fact that I read a full half of it while in a, uh, what I might call a post-booster mind fugue <laughs> that I've been in for the past 48 hours? Maybe. That could be true. <laughs> I'm willing to I'm willing to uh to open up to that. Yeah, you were but having your little job at dreams. I was having some oh, tune into the bonus episode to really hear some job at dreams. I'm going to describe <laughs> to you my uh my future job at dreams. Okay. <laughs> uh in the bonus episode. That's a little sting for the bonus episode. Patreon.com slash range touch. Uh, in order to check that out, because I have a whole narrative about my job at Dreams and how they lead into watching the movie for this month, The Graveyard Shift. Ooh. <laughs> the Graveyard Shift. <laughs> damn it. God damn. <laughs> and if you don't know what I'm talking about there, tune into the bonus episode. Oh, it's going to be a good time. It will be. Uh-huh. So, yeah, uh, this is a, a fantasy novel. It's kind of a young adult fantasy novel. And this all all the stuff, right? Uh, all, all these additions uh, make sense once we look at the sum, which is that this was a story originally written by King for his daughter, Naomi, uh, when she was, I think, probably in her earlier mid-teens. Uh, and the genesis for this project was quite explicitly that she liked fantasy novels. That's what she read. Um, and so she had not read any of, uh, King's novels and he felt, I guess, uh, sort of bad about that, that he was writing things that his daughter didn't want to read. Um, and I, this is compared with Joe, 
uh, who I think in the thing that I read had had read two or three of his father's books by this point. Uh, so Joe had starred in a minor role in his father's film. Yes. <laughs> As a hoodlum. Yeah. Uh, so if she's reading fantasy novels at about 19, like, you know, 1980 through 1984, uh, she's probably reading these Terry Brooks things that we're talking about. Right. Um, and of course, all the stuff that would have come before that. But that's kind of the the vogue of fantasy. And King, for his part, I think, does really nail a lot of uh, the feeling there. Uh, but then the mm-hmm. other interesting uh, kind of kingy aspect of it is that uh, the world as it exists, right, the fantasy world, the thing that we in, in our contemporary moment are uh, kind of uh, supposed to take as the, uh, you know, ne plus ultra of the whole thing, right? Why do you write a fantasy novel if not to construct an entire continuity out of it to wiki it? Um, of course. It's totally insubstantial. Like, it is truly a fairy tale here where it's just like, yeah, there's a kingdom. There's stuff outside the kingdom. What? It doesn't really matter. Like, is there magic? Sure thing. Uh, there's one dragon. It shows up in the first 10 pages and dies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't care about that stuff. Right. The rest of it is sort of like uh, funny little uh, uh, faux medieval people uh, doing faux medieval things. Yeah. It, you know, so I was just looking uh, uh, during that, too, because to, I was thinking about, all right, well, what are the comparable if she's in her early teens? What are the other, um, you know, what do you call it? Uh, like young adult fantasy novels. Right. So. uh could have been reading the Earthsea books. Mm-hmm. Earthsea books, I think, are all out by this point. Mm-hmm. Could be reading Lloyd Alexander, mm-hmm. like the Black Cauldron books and all that. And those are all uh, interesting because, I, I, you know, Earthsea I, I, has magic in it, but I would weirdly enough still call it like low fantasy, mm-hmm. you know, quote unquote. Um, it very much is about people and like what do people do? And it's not about like, you know, magic rings or any of that stuff. Um. And similar, I mean, even though it's the Black Cauldron and magic is is all over the um, the Lloyd Alexander books, those are also very much about like people talking to each other, you know, mm-hmm. Taryn and uh, all those Welsh people, <laughs> all, the, all the pseudo uh, the pseudo Welsh uh, that are in that. And so, um, you know, I, I wonder if maybe that's King keen into some of that too, and being like, all right, what does Naomi like about this? Oh, she doesn't like magic rings. Dang. <laughs> uh, if not, then what does she like? Okay, she likes people talking to each other. All right, let's 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 have them all talking. But yeah, you're right that the um, the the magic here really only exists as like little uh, sputters around flag and then this dragon that shows up for like two minutes and then turns into a Scooby-Doo gag. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not really a gag, but, you know, a Scooby-Dooism, I guess mm-hmm. we should say. Yeah, so uh, when when this story gets, I think, initially written and or told, whatever's happening with it, the title of it is The Napkins. Yep. Um, which, there are, in fact, a lot of napkins. <laughs> yes, napkins are, in fact, plot critical to this book. We will talk about that, but uh, in, in kind of another, I guess, emerging Stephen King tradition, <laughs> the extremely weird title gets switched out for something slightly more sensible uh, in the publishing process. Um, how this book goes to press, Cameron, did you happen to pick up any of this or do you know it previously? 
No, I, I, I know little pieces of the story, mm-hmm. you know, the, the bedtime story thing. Uh, for whatever reason, the version I'd heard of this was that it was for his son, Joe, rather than Naomi, which really kind of changes the, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, the, the whole deal here. Uh, it also makes a lot more sense why Naomi shows up in the book now. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but no, I don't I don't really know anything about this. Uh, so uh, King liked this story so much that uh he ended up self-publishing it this is a thing that king can do now uh he self-publishes through philtrum press which is his press imprint um so for instance uh way back during the rage episode when we read uh his essay guns that was released as an ebook that was published through philtrum uh and it's you know it is it is his imprint right it's run by i think like his personal assistant um he Hmm. He self-published it through Filtrum uh, with illustrations by uh, someone named Kenneth R. Linkhauser. Uh, and it was a uh, 1,000 signed editions. Uh, and they were sold. Most of these were sold via lottery to fans. Uh, so I guess hmm. like, you know, the word went out through because his uh, uh, assistant, I think, also at this point is maybe probably running like a, a, a newsletter or something. Um, so those get sold via lottery. And then there's a second edition of 250 signed copies numbered in red that King distributes to his Christmas card list. So if you were like Stephen King's good enough friend in 1984, uh, you received a special limited edition numbered uh, self-published book uh, of a story he made up for his daughter. Huh. Which is, I mean, sort of interesting and also, I mean, neat, right? If Stephen King were to send me a book, be like, here, Michael, a little something from me, Steve. I, I, I'm not going to, I'm going to, you know, scoff at that. Uh, but it's like a whole book <laughs> for Christmas. Yeah, do you feel obligated? That's an interesting thing. Do you feel obligated to sit down and read it then? I, what if he asks you about it? I know, right? That's my thought. And if it's this book, oh my God. I'm going to have so much trouble trying to talk to him about it. I'm thinking this is like the best episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> I think it would be very like, good. Stephen King sends Larry David a full novel. <laughs> and it's about Larry David trying to decide if he should read it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Ted Danson reads it day one. Oh, God. Uh, so uh, the the... the other bit of context here is that are you aware of uh, Stephen King's unfinished like novella, The Plant? Uh, I know that it exists, but I don't know any information about it. So uh, The Plant, uh, and you can look this up. I think it's maybe posted for free on King's website. Um, the Plant was an early ebook experiment for King that was also self-published through Filtrum. And you could like go to the website and you know, I think it was like, I don't know, five dollars per chapter or something. Um, mm-hmm. And then it ended up not being cost effective and like a lot of people were pirating it anyhow. Uh, so it's unfinished. It was never finished. But uh, how the plant started life was exactly as uh, King's Christmas card. So for us, for a couple of years, he was sending out uh, with the family Christmas card, like these chunks of this epistolary novel about some uh, people who work in a publishing house who I don't know, I think make it, it's unfinished. So it's unclear what's going on, makes a mad scientist and or magician angry and some sort of evil plant shows up. Anyway, uh, that's what King was doing. The plant gets paused for Eyes of the Dragon to be released. 
uh, as in this fashion. Uh, and then a couple of years later, uh, in 1987, uh, Viking publishes the like mass market edition um, with some editing. Uh, like I think uh, one of the things I read suggested that like the character of Ben in this book kind of uh, the way that we're reading him now, that's an expanded role from how he shows up in the original draft. Um, hmm. And with new illustrations, uh, this time by uh, a dude named David Palladini. Oh, so these are not the original ones. No, they are not. What do the original ones look like? Do I, we know? I do not know. Ooh, I am uh, I am going to be very honest here. Uh, I think that these illustrations that we've got from Palladini are the most appropriate ones. <laughs> hey, we can buy a copy of this for a sweet $2,950. The original. And this is a re no, this oh. is a reprint. Oh, my God. Yeah. It, the original was reprinted. Oh, my God. Uh oh, the original ones are pretty cool. They look like Dore. Oh. Uh yeah, hold on. Let's see here if I can get some uh Yeah. Here, I'll send it to you. You can edit this as you see fit. Depends on what my reaction is. They're pretty sweet. I think they're better than what we have. They look a lot more like the Lord of the Rings, mm. I would say. Oh yeah, no, these are like lithographs. These are cool. They're pretty sweet. Yeah, I, I, I will say that the illustrations... Oh, cool. There's an illustration of him falling into the napkin pile. <gasps> Spoilers, Cameron. Uh-oh. But uh, the... I, yeah, I, I agree with you. The illustrations in the published book, uh, I... I don't know what's going on with them. They're very goofy looking is the thing. They're goofy looking. Yeah, they're I think that they were trying to go for a like friendly to young adults look. Mhm. Mm but I don't think you have to do that. Mhm. Mm like I don't I don't think you need to pander in your illustrations. There's also an illustration of a dog that looks legit terrifying <laughs> because it is as if the illustrator and again, I'm not saying this to be mean. Uh this is just a fact, I think. It looks as if the, the illustrator had never seen a dog before. <laughs> did you? <laughs> my favorite aspect of these illustrations. Uh, did you see the one of um, it's a flags uh, little laboratory and there's like a little mm -hmm. uh, uh, like cage in the corner with like this spider thing in it. <laughs> yeah. And it's uh, it's like it's like uh, what a person would draw if they had never seen a spider before, but had had one described to them. Yeah, I don't know what's... Maybe they were having to, like, draw really small or something. Yeah, yeah, it's like a little... It's like a potato with legs. Yeah, it's really weird looking. Also, I think it only has six legs. Yes. It has just a face drawn on the front of it, like a smiley face. Yes! <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it's probably not really a spider. It's supposed to be some, like, generic, like, fantasy beastie. Uh, but still, the, the thing that has been produced is this, like, six-legged smiling potato. <laughs> yeah, it's got triangles for eyeballs, just straight-up triangles. So, I don't know, maybe this person was under duress. You know, maybe they were under a deadline. Maybe they thought they'd get some additional <laughs> passes on this thing. I don't know. But, yeah, I would say that... The illustrations are not where it is at in this uh, in this book, mm -hmm. unfortunately. So you don't like this? Oh no! Like this is this is probably the worst experience I've had reading a book for this podcast. Uh, 
I mean, bar none, right? Up to this point, like, you know, I uh, did not like... Rage is better than this. Well, uh, Rage was more interesting than this. I Love My Mother and She Fucks is more interesting than this book. <laughs> yes! That's hmm. immensely more interesting. <laughs> like, uh, uh, you know, Rage is a book that is is uh, spectacularly bad and is just like uh, falling over itself in a whole bunch of bizarre ways. Um, and this is, you know, I, I mentioned this to you uh, before we started recording like a couple weeks ago when I was, I, I was reading this and kind of doing my best not to complain about it too much. I think this might be the book that made me hate fantasy. Because, <laughs> like, I remember reading it uh, when I was, you know, between or whatever um, mm -hmm. and disliking it. But also, like, this is about the time where I, like, recall developing my opinion that I did not like fantasy novels. And I mm -hmm. think it might be a result of this book. <laughs> uh, Dang. Yeah. I mean, it's because I don't know, uh, it partly at least. Right. I think some of it was sort of the young adultness of it, um, sort of that like uh, knowing narratorial voice and sort of I mean, basically how this is a story with absolutely no stakes. Yeah, but well, because the it's fundamentally conservative. Yes. <laughs> right. Like it's a restoration fantasy. Yes. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, let's get into it as we get into the analysis of it. Because, yeah. I mean, I think that's right. You know, I think that the, I don't think there's any criticism of this book that could be made that I would not agree with. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I, you know, I think that ultimately it's, uh, yeah, there, there's no stakes to it. We, we know exactly what's going to happen at the beginning, uh, simply because of the kind of story it is and, and that kind of narratorial voice, um, and yet, uh, you know, I think, I don't know. We'll, we'll get into it when we get into it. You, you want me to do the five-sentence summary? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, Cameron, it's your turn to do the five-sentence summary where off the top of your head, uh, you summarize the entire plot of this novel from beginning to end in five sentences. Let's hear it. Look, this is going to sound stereotypical, and I'm not meaning for it to. Stereotypical to who? for me okay what is the main character's name <laughs> <laughs> well i mean who's the main character by your reckoning the uh the rightful king okay king peter Arthur. peter got it okay <clears throat> oh god what okay mm -mm. should we should we run through character names before we no, do no, no, it should I this be it. a new segment where we no. name the <laughs> characters in the book no no i got it i got it i got it Okay, ready to go. All right, first sentence. <clears throat> there is a king named Roland, and he sucks, <laughs> and he has two sons. One good, one bad. Period. The good son is named Peter, and he will become king one day. But the evil wizard flag hates him because he is an agent of chaos. Third sentence. The kid who sucks is named Thomas, and Flag does a bunch of weird uh, hooliganism in order to poison the king and put Thomas on the throne by framing Peter for murdering the king, open parentheses, who Peter loved a whole lot, almost comically, close parentheses. 
Peter is trapped in a tower and sews a but no wait <laughs> weaves nope does some other thing ropes a bunch of threads from napkins together to create a rope to escape period okay get it in in this last mm-hmm. sentence a bunch of side characters do a whole bunch of horse shit <laughs> and ultimately end up helping peter escape semicolon thomas shoots flag with an arrow and order is restored to the ancient magical kingdom of Delane. Period. Okay, yeah. That's right. That's that, it. That'll happen. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's about all the points that really matter in this story. Because it is, I mean, I don't know how, which edition you have or how long it is. Uh, mine... I've got a penguin... Uh, like pocket paperback mm-hmm. that I paid it looks like I'm looking at here 50 cents for uh, at the local library sale recently and uh, illustrations by David Palladini no it's a signet book I'm sorry mm-hmm. I don't know why it says Ping- is signet a subsidiary of Penguin I don't know okay well anyway signet book uh, it is oh gosh no signet published by New American Library a division of Penguin Putnam Incorporated from I don't know when this was done <laughs> but it's from that like really ugly covers time period of uh, Stephen King from maybe the early 2000s uh, describe the cover for me it's got a little dragon on it but it's not green or anything it's like just red and black with an orange like photoshop neon outline oh is this uh, is the font like that really like severe almost art deco kind yeah. of thing yeah, where they they released like matching editions of all of King. Yes, in this like yeah Art Deco-y kind of, where the name Stephen King is like one third of the cover. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. So it's from that yeah. time period. So how long is it in your edition? Three hundred and eighty pages. Okay, I have an older edition, but it's the exact same uh, page numbers. Interesting. Um, which is interesting. Uh, it's also a signet, but this is I think mine is uh, like a probably a nineteen eighty. If not 1987, then shortly thereafter, um, printing. Anyway, 380 pages is the point. Uh, this thing overall has about as much plot as Cycle of the Werewolf. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, we we talk a lot about Stephen King stapling genre onto the bourgeois novel, mm-hmm. and the bulk of this is just the bourgeois novel. Uh, weirdly enough, the bourgeois novel that is uh, filtered through a young adult fantasy thing. Mm-hmm. But but what I mean by that is there's a huge amount of discussion of like intersocial dynamics and what people think about one another. Uh, that's the bulk of the novel. The bulk of the novel is people thinking, um, do, do I think this person is a king? Do I not think this person is a king? Do I think this person likes me? Do I not think this person likes me? Is Flag going to hurt me? Is he not going to hurt me? Uh, does my father love me? Does he not love me? I feel shame about that. I don't feel shame about that. I'm prideful. I'm not prideful. Like, <laughs> that's the whole book. Mm-hmm. The whole book is we are introduced to a character. We get an intensive mental model of what they think about the world within their two dimensions. And then they either run into the plot 
or they go away forever. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the whole book. And I, but but that's the thing. And you know, maybe this is just like big broad summary of why I like the book so much. Is I think King is really good at that. Mm-hmm. I think King is really good at giving you. Um, characters and this is like the same as his like small town main characters right at the end of the day mm-hmm. he's really good at sketching you a little guy and being <laughs> like hey look at that little guy running around and i think that he's maybe better at doing that in a fantasy space because i don't have to then be like who are these people Stu redmond is hanging out with right like i don't have to do that we're like what who these people live in texas i don't have to do any of that i can be like okay this is stephen king's fantasy world in which everyone's like a weird little goofy mind gremlin Mm -hmm. and they don't think too hard about anything and they're like kind of uncomplicated okay that's like a fantasy world uh that goes down pretty easy for me um whereas uh i think that's that's harder for me to buy in in the real world Mm -hmm. um and this is kind of positioning as a thing where I just think maybe Stephen King should have just been a fantasy guy, hmm. which he do, he does kind of become just a fantasy guy, but yeah. it takes a while. Yeah, he he eventually like accepts the the mantle of you know great American fantasist myth maker. Yeah, uh, much sooner actually than than one might think. Uh, keep an eye out for it. it that's what I was going to say. You, did you see that it shows up in here? Yeah. Yeah, we can talk about that. There's so many ideas over the next... I I think I messaged you this. Uh, didn't I say... Maybe I did. You can tell me if I'm wrong. But uh, this is the next 20 years of Stephen King. Yeah, in, in like the big... Uh, I mean, this is this is his world-building model, right? A hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, but, but even like the plot points and the ways that he approaches things, mm-hmm. right? So like... The idea, something that we have talked about over and over again is, you know, uh, King has an idea that evil undoes itself in the end. Yes. Um, This gives you an entire, like, children's literature set of mechanics to explain that. Yes. That evil is forgetful. Evil will blind itself to its own problems, right? Evil's maybe overconfident. Mm -hmm. Evil is prideful, and pride comes before a fall, even though that's not talked about in terms of flag. Uh, That's still very much here. Um the entire model of like the white and, mm-hmm. and the white as an idea, an idea that will come uh, from, uh, you, you know, that will reestablish itself if given the opportunity to do so. That ultimately goodness will win out mm-hmm. in the absence of bad actors. Um, uh, the uh, and then a whole bunch of like actual literal world building stuff. But yeah, the the idea that there's like a villainous kind of chaos agent that's behind any given uh, instantiation of that that's specifically called it. You know that flag is no longer a a person mm-hmm. in this at the end of this when he's like going wild and like doing murders. He is an it mm-hmm. like capital I T. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there's there's just a lot of. Stephen King ideas he's going to return to consistently that are just like here out in the open. Yeah, and we've already said the name a couple of times, but Flag, right? It's mm-hmm. it's him. Mm-hmm. It's that guy, <laughs> basically, from from yeah. the stand. Like he's just he's just here being his his chaos agent self. Uh, I think this is. I'm like reviewing stuff in my mind, I guess, aside from like one for the road, uh, the story that sort of, you know, is the the epilogue to Salem's lot, essentially. Uh, mm-hmm. This is the hardest like King world connection we've gotten thus far. Yeah, other than uh, well, for the most part, it's been location based, uh-huh. right? So like Castle Rock showing up repeatedly um, and that kind of thing. 
But and so it's been a shared world, but now we are getting shared character names. Mm-hmm. Um, and very quickly out of this, we're going to see a whole lot of shared character names or slightly augmented names or whatever. You know, a, a lot of this re- reading this in in publication order is very helpful to see where a lot of the ideas that are in uh, the drawing of the three are going to come from. Mm-hmm. Um, like the the nature of magic in Stephen King's fantasy world, the kind of like pseudo feudal, but also like modern-y, right? And I mean, like modernity style, mm-hmm. you know, modern England kind of thing. I mean, there's like West Virginia coal miners in this book. Yeah, it's weird <laughs> for some reason. Um, and uh, but but yeah, this kind of like bouncing back and forth between kind of different technological um achievements or developments uh and those can you fold it into a fantasy world that's all that's all here mm-hmm. um but yeah i mean you know the five sentence summary is you know kind of a, a shortened version of this but really what i said there is basically what's going on with this novel right there there are two sons and they go through different i don't know developments as people peter has a mother and so is like a balanced out human being and thomas uh, his mother dies in childbirth. Mm-hmm. And so he is, I mean, King is making it pretty explicit that he is like a broken person mm-hmm. for for that reason and for the fact that he is the product of rape. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ma- magical rape. Yeah, Flag. Uh, which is, woof. <laughs> Flag gives the king Roland, which, you know, also there's the resonance there of Roland from the gunslinger. Um, and the kingdom yeah. is called Delane. And Roland's name is Roland Deschain, although... Did we we got Deschain in the Gunslinger, didn't we? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we do. And and also, I think that in the Gunslinger we already have the inner baronies. Mm-hmm. I think that that's already established. Yes. Delane is is or where the castle is is in the inner baronies, but these are not the same place. Things are. This is this is um actually one of the things that is. I think it it really does work for me about the Kingian like cross uh book world building sort of weird continuity stuff. Um, is that often the connections are. Uh, not so much like this is a this is a book that takes place in the exact same world as another thing you've read. It's like these weird echoes. And especially when we get into kind of this this fantasy stuff that's sort of forking off of the Dark Tower where things uh, are like reflections of previous stuff rather than direct invocations. It's like the same thing, but slightly different. And that's really cool to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's going to show up uh, uh, in a similar kind of echoey kind of thing. It's going to be in the talisman, mm-hmm. and then uh, you know that you you would not believe Michael, like what, uh, like young adult me, historical me, mm-hmm. when the final Dark Tower books came out, and like Thomas and Dennis did not show up to be important main characters. Mm-hmm the disappointment Mm -hmm. and like now i can exactly what you just said i i definitely way more appreciate this kind of like shared perspective i you know i guess is like the shared schematics Mm -hmm. of the world right you know these places are kind there are other worlds than these right Mm -hmm. these are kind of the same thing but they're not really the same thing and maybe they're in the same proximal universe but they might not be the exact same universe uh, I, I I I similarly like that a lot more, but God, I didn't. Uh, Fifteen years ago, I did not like that at all. Mm-hmm. I was so pissed off. 
Yeah. Um, way more pissed off about that than like anything else that people get mad about in the last couple of Dark Tower books. <laughs> um, but it, anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah, just uh, to clarify that, just to cut to the chase. So uh, when Flag is defeated at the end of this book, uh, he doesn't just like he doesn't die and leave a corpse. He dies actually in a very similar way to the way that Flag goes out in the stand, which is to say mm-hmm. he uh, gets grievously injured to the point that he like disappears. Um, and then when we get to the stand complete and uncut, we know that uh, once he disappears, he just reappears somewhere else. Uh, but here he just kind of disappears. And then Thomas, the 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 bad son who got manipulated into being the bad king, uh, he and his buddy set out on like an adventure to find and confront Flag once and for all. And the thing that I read about uh, them confronting Dr. Aegon is actually about them finding and confronting Flag, which is, you know, left on that little note of, but oh, I'm not going to tell you that story now because I've already told you this one. Yeah. Um, there, there are a, a bunch of sequel setups in this book that don't go anywhere. And just to circle back to what you're saying, so uh, so Flag is like this weird evil uh, wizard who is basically the uh, evil queen from Snow White, um, from the yeah, Disney film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. He's just sort of like hanging out in in the kingdom, uh, and he's manipulating Roland the king. Uh, Roland is interesting because he is like, uh, so the 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 other uh, parallel here that I think is really interesting is uh, someone I forgot to mention last episode when I was talking about Kirby McCulley, uh, King's agent, who was, you know, very important and sort of uh, influential in kind of the building of the horror and horror adjacent genre spaces in this time. Uh, another person who uh, McCulley represented was a fellow named uh, George R. R. Martin. He was, wow. he was Martin's George Ron, Ron Martin. Yep. George Ron, Ron Martin. Uh, he was uh, Martin's first agent, and uh, you can feel a lot, in my opinion, uh, you can feel a lot of uh, like King or like uh, Martin's approach to low fantasy in King and vice versa. These seem to be guys who are like taking notes from each other um, because Roland in this book is basically like Robert Baratheon from uh, A Song of Ice and Fire, except uh, in the sense that he loves to hunt, he loves to drink, he's a bad king because he is really more interested in kind of like hooting and hollering and, and being a dude's dude. The big difference is that uh, Roland in this book is uh, nearly asexual. Like, we get the narrator telling us a about how he just has no interest in women or sort of like sex. And like he has to uh, take basically a potion uh, like an aphrodisiac potion in order to like have sex. Well, he's a little bit afraid of them. (laughs) Yeah. He's a little bit afraid of women, which is uh, this is, I think, like, I don't know. I think this is part of what the book, what makes the book work for me, right? Is that it could be really flat here, right? Where it's like, he's just interested in drinking and carousing and is just not interested in sex whatsoever, right? He's just, you know, uh, I, I, I don't think in the 80s, certainly I don't think Stephen King has any language no, for that, no. right? To explain that, right? But, you know, it could be left at that. But But there's all these kind of like characterization moments that come in, right? Where it's, it's not that he's not interested in having sex in a general sense, but it's that he is a deeply fearful person. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's deep in a lot of ways. And he overcomes that or deals with that via drinking 
Um, and he spends a lot of time alone. You know, he, we, we get a huge amount of that. Um, and he really loves his wife, but is not interested really in having sex with her, right? Mm-hmm. And there, there are all these kind of wrinkles to him as a character that make him, like, something way different from, like, a fantasy king, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, even, like, a fantasy bad king. He's he's an interesting, weird dude. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but yeah, but, you know, uh, as you're saying, the, the, uh, they want, or Flag in particular, right, is thinking longitudinally about, like, how do I control the kingdom? And uh, one of his solutions for that is to make sure that Roland has more than one heir. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he creates this potion to make, you know, and, and again, we weirdly enough, there's kind of like a, you know, a, an ethical thing going on here, right? Uh, you know, or, or, or kingy and ethical thinking, right? Like Flag is doing something to make Roland do something he doesn't want to do, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at the end of the day. And that ultimately ends up creating this, you know, he gets so drunk that he ends up, um, you know, raping his wife, and then she has a child and is murdered in childbirth. Because mm-hmm. Flag uh, enlists the midwife to, uh, uh, like, cut her uh, as she's delivering, and that kills Sasha, who is the queen. Yeah, you don't think any of this is cool? You don't, like, the, all of this to me, I was, like, reading this book, and I was like, oh, whatever, whatever. And as we get to, like, that part, I was like, oh, man, this is a fantasy novel. Yeah! <laughs> Uh, no, I, I really, like what a practical solution <laughs> for being evil. I just, I, it is very hard for me, I think, to, uh, care about fantasy. I don't know what it is, mm. but like the, the sort of like work that a fantasy, uh, story has to do to like, get me to invest is just, mm. it, it's steep for me. And I, I can't really give you a, a set of good reasons why I don't think and this is not like, you know, I don't, I don't want to moralize this. It's not about like, oh, I just think fantasy is stupid and people who like it are stupid it's just like i, I don't know oh, I just, classicist michael yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> why isn't the muse singing of the glory of achilles um mm-hmm. no it's just like i i cannot care about these characters and this world unless it is doing something mm-hmm. different so like you know what's interesting is that what you like what we just described about like flag having the midwife uh kill Sasha, Sasha in childbirth. Um, the, this is also kind of a George R. R. Martin thing, uh, in, mm-hmm. in that, like, you know, George R. R. Martin can get into kind of like the low politicking of a fantasy world. Um, and what really sells me, well, and I guess this is actually, maybe it's a problem with like the way King tends to write, uh, sort of genres. Um, like, uh, Martin, like just leans into that, right? Everyone in a George R. R. Martin mm-hmm. novel, more or less, is going to end up being a kind of uh, a flaggian politician, uh, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and that sort of builds out in a way that I find very compelling because it's like, okay, right, here's this world and here's how these people act. Whereas uh, for King, you know, partly for, I think, his own reasons and partly just because of, uh, you know, the YA-ness of this, uh, this is a book that is still uh, very much dealing in kind of uh, moral absolutes and platitudes, uh, as we've been talking about. Like, the first son who is, uh, like, I think one of the few times that Roland can sleep with Sasha without having taken a concoction from flag and to be clear like i think he takes multiple concoctions but there's only like the one specific one that causes him to yeah. rape her um yeah the um yeah because and the time that he is uh 
enthusiastic is after he kills the dragon. Yes. Right. So like dragons are basically extinct in this world. He goes out a hunting and, uh, you know, uh, unbeknownst to anyone, a dragon is living there and it comes out and he murders it. Really love Stephen King's description of a dragon, mm-hmm. which like doesn't make any physical sense at all and is awesome for that. Mm-hmm. You know, he talks about how, you know, its wings aren't big enough. And so, you know, it has to go through multiple moltings. He has clearly in his mind, like, a mental model of what a dragon is, but really stays away from actually describing it to us other than these kind of, uh, you know, partial characteristics. Uh, it's, it's very actually Lovecraftian in that way, mm-hmm. um, where there's, you don't get, you never get a whole body. Right. There, there's know, a real animality to it. Nevertheless. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, but yes, you're, so, you know, uh, 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 Peter is produced out of that good sexual encounter. You know, I'm, I'm making air quotes. Yes, this also means, uh, uh, notably, uh, and this is, I said this before, but it's literally within the first 10 pages of this novel written for his daughter, King (laughs) describes uh, the Roland uh, presenting himself to his wife for the first time and being incapable of getting an erection or like having trouble. He's not incapable, but it takes a little bit of work. And so, like, there's this exchange between Roland and Sasha because Sasha also is like, uh, you know, a total innocent. Uh, she's, you know, a, a, a bit younger than Roland, who is like marrying in middle age. This is also why he's kind of like a weak king and he's such a fearful guy. Um, but the, she's just like, why my husband? What is that? And he's like, it is the king's forge or whatever. And it's like, oh, my God. No, it's the king's iron oh. because she has the. Oh, forge. that's and she right. She says, "Well, well, whatever will you do with it, my king?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's. I, I have no idea. <laughs> right? Look, I, I think we've already had uh, several discussions about this, but we'll, and we'll have more of Stephen King writing things that, to any logical mind, <laughs> it makes no sense why you would do this, mm-hmm. and this is an instance of that. Mm-hmm. Of Steve, what are you doing? Like, why? Why did this? But also, this is the thing we got to remember, right? And it's something we've talked about a few times. We're in the mid '80s. Mm-hmm. Stephen King is at the height of his power. Mm-hmm. You can't tell him no, and he is using cocaine all the time. Uh, there, like, th- speaking of, he's using uh, lots of drugs, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, this is a, yet again another novel about addiction, mm-hmm. um, and not in metaphorical terms in the way that a couple other ones have been. You know, this one is, uh, you know, men using alcohol, explicitly alcohol, using alcohol and sleeping pills uh-huh. slash potions uh-huh. uh, to uh, calm down and like get through the day. Mm-hmm. And feeling like shit all the time because of it. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, man, Steve. Like, you know. Like, you can't. This, this again, this is a young adult fantasy novel. Mm-hmm. And Stephen King had to be like, all right, how do I get, a, 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 you know, some addiction narrative in here? And it's the dude's living it, you know? I, I think he he's working it out through the fiction. I don't think there's any masking of that here at all. Mm -hmm. No, it's really fascinating, right? So Peter gets born. uh, He's too innately good, like too, too clearly like uh, noble. uh, And flag is like, 
this isn't going to suit my plans because we also know because of the way that the narrator keeps kind of like stepping back and sort of telescoping out. The narrator says mm-hmm. something like, you know, would it surprise you to know that Randall Flagg was or he's not Randall Flagg, but would it surprise you to know that Flagg was uh, not as old as he seemed? And he's in fact been around for hundreds and hundreds of years and he's come to Delane before and he's always been he, he's he's this recurring chaos agent who always comes back to Delane to try to wreak havoc. Um, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. I love this, Michael. <laughs> do, where, where do you land on this? Because, like, for me, I read this as one of my earliest Stephen King novels. Mm-hmm. I don't know where it is in that that kind of, you know, first five or so, but it's certainly there at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I would say that this flip side, you know, from you, right? I, I know that before this I'd read uh, those Lord Alexander books. I'd read The Hobbit. I'd read The Lord of the Rings. I'd read a lot of Dragonlance and Forgotten Realms books. Mm-hmm. Um, because I probably read this in the fourth or fifth grade, mm-hmm. I would say. Mm-hmm. Somewhere somewhere in there. Maybe the fifth grade. Mm-hmm. But somewhere in there is when I read The, the Eyes of the Dragon. And uh, this, I was like, oh, this is storytelling. <laughs> like, this, this to me is fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the idea that there's just like this asshole running around and like being he's he's ancient he's an ancient evil and everyone is just too uh, you know goofy to to realize it they're all just like little human beings and not realizing he's working on this like epic scale by the way there's this book called it that's coming <laughs> <Yeah>. up soon that <laughs> seems to also work this way in a very similar way but uh, like I I love this and reading it now I love this it, it was awesome because there's all these rumors that he comes from Garland which again gets recycled in the Dark Tower mm-hmm. um, or you know a similar kind of landscape uh, in the Dark Tower and it's explicitly here like exoticized in a very kind of uh, Euro literature way to be uh, the Middle East like where the Arabian Nights is taking place mm-hmm. um. And there's all this kind of stuff, and, and the narrator's like, I don't know, maybe he doesn't come from there. Maybe he comes from somewhere else. But this kind of like, you know, what we've called, I guess, uh, Stephen King's cinematic, you know, eyeball, it, it, it like zooms out further than it's ever zoomed out before, right? And now it's like doing time scales, <laughs> is like doing that. And and this, I think, is the, it's one of the big fundamental moves that's coming out of the eyes of the dragon. Uh, we saw that a little bit in Pet Cemetery, where we zoomed out into Judd Crandall's storytelling that gives us like, a hundred years, you know, or, or maybe a little bit more than that, but at least a hundred years of like what's going on in this geographic place. And now we're zooming back even further and we're going to do that a bunch of times, right? That's going to be it where we're like zooming out progressively further in time. Mm-hmm. That is the Tommy knockers. The Tommy knockers works that way. Um, and, and of course the dark tower, right? Which is kind of constantly doing this thing. So, it, you know, I began this with a question. Does this work for you? Do you like this kind of, of maneuver? I mean, I think I like it in kind of a general sense. Uh, I think I would like it more in a book that is not this one. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I mean, this again, ultimately, right? It is difficult for me to convey how little I care about anything that is happening here or anyone involved in terms of characters. Uh, like the formal mechanisms are interesting, but also the novels just like repetitive, uh, and the, the, the sort of simplicity of it, right. The, the, it's both a Kingian simplicity, but also the young adult, uh, fantasy, uh, simplicity of it is just not at all interesting to me. Right. Uh, like flag is 
On the one hand, you point out, uh, there are all these really interesting textual techniques around him and his history. And on the other hand, what does Flag do in this novel? I've already said it, right? He is a Disney villain. He literally, like, he goes down to his lab and it's like, he had all of these cages sitting around with ghoulies and beasties in them. And there's a two-headed talking parrot that says ominous things. And he's like uh, running through all of his books and like cackling and looking for his poisons because his 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 laboratory is under the dungeons and he always wears a cowl and i well i i gotta come out here right now and say it mm -hmm. i like a ghoulie and a beastie <laughs> i just i i like them but i it, the i totally get that but the texture here is so different to me than a disney villain right mm -hmm. because like the description of him uh, so he's going to poison Sasha at one point before he actually like, does the thing he does. And he, like, finds a spider that he has been feeding poison mice to mm -hmm. for, like, 20 years. Mm -hmm. To make it more poison. <laughs> yeah, to make it more poisonous. It's like a cartoon character. Make it more poison. And then he, like, kills it. Mm -hmm. You know, this thing he's invested so much time into. And he's going to put it in the, po in, you know, in the, the goblet. And then he ultimately ends up pouring it down the sewer. Mm -hmm. You know, this kind of deflationary move. Uh, and, uh, you know, because it's not the right time or there's a description later of a spider, uh, flag's got a lot of spiders going on, but of a spider crawling across his spell book and it touches a particularly powerful spell and it like turns to stone. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like, I, I, you're a hundred percent right. Like schematically, I 100% agree with you, but the texture here is not the texture of that kind of story. Mm -hmm. The texture here, you know, the, the crinulations on the page as it were. Mm -hmm. Are, are very different to me. And it's those things that I really appreciate about it. Yeah. Um, uh, even if I don't like the, it, it's a really a weird thing. It's like, I don't like the skeleton or I, I have no opinion really on the skeleton, but I really like the skin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I like the set that the skeleton's on, but the skeleton itself is the thing that I don't really care for. Yeah. I think for me, the skeleton is just overpowering the skin, right? <laughs> uh, like a good example of this flag adjacent is how uh, flag ends up killing the king. Uh, King Roland. So Roland, oh, yeah. Roland drinks yeah. a lot. Uh, and because uh, Peter is just such a, a, a darling little boy every night as he reaches kind of his a, a adulthood, right? He, he grows into this. He brings his father his his last glass of wine every evening that uh, King Roland has in his chambers. Um, and flag takes advantage of this by serving role after after uh, Peter has done his thing for the evening flag drops by. And he uh, serves a second glass of wine that is poisoned. Uh, but it is poisoned with a thing called dragon sand, uh, which uh, is basically it's it's like sand, right? It's, it's like some sort of like weird granular substance, uh, but it's highly reactive and has to be kept within like it has to be wrapped up in like an enchanted parchment packet and like kept in a box that is also enchanted because if it touches anything like straight on, it just starts burning through. Uh, and so Flag mixes this in with Roland's drink. And then uh, over the course of like uh, two days, uh, Roland goes from like feeling like pretty okay to feeling really, really bad to basically spontaneously combusting. Like he just gets hotter and hotter and hotter until he dies. Um, and then at like, this is kind of like 
a, a long form thing of the novel. Uh, Flag disposes mm-hmm. of uh, some of the remainder of the dragon sand by like uh, throwing it into like he, he or he experiments with it. He like puts it in the sewers of the castle, uh, which mm-hmm. later on uh, when there's like a jailbreak plot going on to rescue Peter, um, some other characters discover that like all the rats in the sewer are just dead and have been dead since Flag did this thing. Uh, but <laughs> well, the narrator tells us, right? Yes. It's even better. The character's just like, well, I hope there's no rats in here. And the narrator's like, well, you know, it's it's uh, Steve's inability to not explain something, mm-hmm. right? That That's really been on pause for the past couple books, but it comes back in full force. <laughs> it's like he's thought through the biomechanics of dragon sand <laughs> and been like, all right, well, it would kill all the it would definitely kill all the rats. So I need to make sure I get that in here somewhere. Yeah, so, I mean, there's that, but then uh, after Peter's trial, because uh, uh, they find a little bit of the remnants of the dragon sand to implicate Peter because uh, Flag has, like, hidden some away in Peter's room. Uh, mm-hmm. They dispose, uh, or they find the dragon sand, or they find it, they're like, I think this is the poison, and they're like, who who here can tell us if this is poison or not? Ah, the magician Flag. And Flag is like, my god, this is the most potent poison I know. I, I've only heard of it in myths up to this point. It's called dragon sand. Uh, and I have to dispose of it in a very careful way, and they take it out to, like, a distant lake and drop it in the middle. And there's this, like, brief mention that, like, in 100 to 200 years, it's possible that the dragon sand could kill every fish in that lake. And like what kicks ass about that is that like, oh, it's just like radioactive material. Yeah, it explicitly is radioactive material. Right. Because uh, we get the uh, wherever it comes from. I forget the explicit place where it comes from, but uh, it's it's basically a radioactive sand dune. Yes, <laughs> because if it blows in your face, you know, on the way from there, it'll just kill you. Uh, yeah, that's great. I mean, this it's this kind of like great thing of Stephen King's melding of science fiction fantasy. It's the thing that makes the Dark Tower cool, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just on a basic level, is that the Dark Tower, even though in the Gunslinger version that we read, that's really, um, uh, I don't know, suppressed, I would say. The magic-y stuff in there is more suppressed mm-hmm. than it ends up being. Um by the time we get there, you know, by the time we get to the next couple books, there's a lot of magic-y kind of stuff. And it's, like, kind of explainable with science-y, science fiction-y stuff, but not really. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you don't want to think too hard about it. Um, I, I think similar to that, I think that's really cool in the same way that the uh, Flag's magic crystal he uses is really cool. Where it, it's like, an, um, uh, it gives you information, answers to your questions, but it, it's kind of uh, oblique about it. Um, and that gets kind of reformed some sort yeah, some ahead. sort of magic cue ball maybe it's kind of like a magic cue ball but that gets kind of reformulated too into the uh into the the uh merlin's 13 or whatever they are hey everybody uh michael butting in here for our ad break woo yeah everyone's favorite part everyone loves the ad break woo Woo. Um, uh, just so you know, uh, you know, Just King Things is part of the Range Touch Network where we do all sorts of shows and we do these basically because you support us in, in, in doing it. Uh, you you can go to patreon.com slash range touch uh, to kick us a few bucks a month. Um, and when you do that, you not only help us keep making these regular shows like Just King Things, uh, where we talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order or Homestuck Made This World, where we're talking about the webcomic Homestuck in, in publication order, uh, but also 
also, uh, you know, video game stuff like Too Much Future, where we're playing through the Fallout series, Mages and Murder Dads, where Cameron and Danny are working through the Baldur's Gate lineage of games, things of that nature. You don't own like we do that stuff, right? That stuff that's out there. It's out there and uh, you can just pick it up on YouTube or in your podcatcher of choice. Uh, but there's also cool secret uh, supporter only stuff on Patreon, including just King Things bonus episodes where Cameron and I uh, talk about Stephen King film adaptations and get kind of into the production history of them and figure out how on earth these things got made. Uh, quite literally, please don't sue us, uh, uh, June, Paul and Jason. Mm-hmm. Um and this month, actually, uh, in, in a, a wild accident, uh, we are talking about the 1990 film Graveyard Shift, uh, which carries forward the theme of Eyes of the Dragon because there's no direct adaptation of it, uh, carries forward the theme of uh, textiles and using machines to make a cloth. Uh, so that was great how that worked out. Uh, and if you, uh, you know, give us uh, $5 a month, you get access to that bonus ode right now, as well as all past bonus episodes. And you know what? All future bonus odes as well. Um, the other things you can do to help us out, uh, if you're already doing that, thanks so much. Uh, you can uh, tell someone you know about us. Say, hey, check out this, this Stephen King podcast. Or you can tell the internet to check out the Stephen King podcast by leaving us a five-star review on your podcast podcast review platform of choice and when that happens uh cameron will uh, occasionally take some of these five star reviews and read them on air which he's going to do right now i'm gonna do it right now uh got a five star review from is that is that actually what's written or are you trying to be no that's okay okay Uh, you want me cg jd gh udd hg tx no, TJX, FJX, FJJ, FD, HB. Pronounced. Uh, this is the review. Five stars. Michael is my darling little boy, and Steve is who we do it for. Cameron is also there. It's true. Oh, thank right, you I got so another much. one. This is another one. This is, uh, this is a review that is titled, My Darling Boy Michael. It's from Kelsey White. Five stars. Yeah, this podcast rules. <laughs> Thanks so much to to you and the other. There are several other people who have a five-star review since we uh, began prodding people to do so. Please leave us a five-star review. It helps more people see the show. The more people who see the show, the more people who listen to the show, the more people who listen to the show, uh, that's just good mm-hmm. in a undefinable and uh, 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 teleological way. <laughs> absolutely true uh and if you're listening again thank you so much if you're supporting thank you so much uh and i don't know i guess back to the show Mm -hmm. and also a flag can uh go dim which is like this is also this is good stuff actually too uh where uh, so what flag can do how he can get to roland's chambers to deliver this uh second thing of wine without anyone noticing it uh and so effortlessly frame peter for it um is that a flag can go dim and the narrator explains like you might just think that means he's turning invisible no it's not that right when he goes dim uh he just becomes like un like he's there 
And if you if the right thing happened, you might actually see him. But like you just don't notice him. He just like slips by. You feel like a wind pass or something, uh, but you don't see him at all. He's just dim to you. And that uh, comes back, of course, in the Dark Tower with uh, Walter Odim. Mm hmm. Who does a very similar thing to what Flag is doing. Yes. Uh, which we have already learned about, I guess, in the Gunslinger, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, he kind of peels the kingdom apart mm-hmm. piece by piece, mm-hmm. um, you know, using political, you know, machinations. But, but yeah, anyway, so what do you think about, this is a character who I, you know, I'm very curious about uh, your relationship to Pena. Oh, this guy, he... An- Anders Pena, is that his name? Yes, the, he, what is he, is okay. like the captain of the guard? No, no, no. He's like the judge general or something. The judge general. Yes, that's it. Um, this guy, this is a George R. R. Martin character. Like, you know, straight up. This is how George R. R. Martin writes his kind of like supporting bureaucrat characters who um, are kind of, you know, men who are not, uh, let's say, blind to the realities of the world and sort of the machinations and politicking, um, but also want to be basically kind of good and also do not want to catch hell because of the machinations of people more powerful than them Mm. well he's a dude who is like uh he makes this gut check so so peter is brought before him right with this uh Mm -hmm. and and uh it doesn't really matter how this happens but you know flag plants evidence it's found by the butler the butler takes it to the whatever this guy is. I don't know if he's actually the judge general. This like head judge guy. And the head judge like interrogates Peter, who is about to be crowned king. And he tells him I don't know, he says something to him. And Peter begins to cry. Mm-hmm. And that like changes Pena's belief. He he thinks that that Peter is crying not because he is, you know, in mourning but because he thinks he's been caught. And that, like, flips the whole novel. The novel wouldn't work if Pena did not have this, like, gut-check belief that someone crying is guilt. I don't know. That seemed, that seemed interesting to me. I, that, that, that's a social maneuver. I don't know. It, 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 it is a uncharacteristic for a young adult novel, I think. Uh, and this is part of the, what I was talking about, why I think that that so much of the book is... Or, or why I enjoyed the book so much is that, you know, it's this kind of thing that Pena has this gut check reaction that is not, uh, that he knows later logically he should not have had. And he has a lot of shame about it. And it ultimately informs like a whole lot of decisions he makes later. But I don't know. I, I thought I thought maybe you would have some feelings about it. And also the fact that he is like a guy who hates revolution and yet is mm-hmm. definitely going to back it at the end. Yes. <laughs> All according to Flag's plan to doubt the good, the good uh, um, pseudo feudal centrists uh, into becoming revolutionaries. Um, (laughs) The uh, so I guess like, again, like I I was just like, yeah, okay, sure. Like he he thinks that uh, Peter is guilty because Peter started crying, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me why that would be his go-to uh but you can backfill i think some like uh 
And I think maybe we're intended to backfill some like patriarchal like assumptions of this world and to maybe I think assume that because it is a uh, pseudo medieval that it's like more patriarchal than than we might expect. Uh, there's a big deal. We haven't talked about this at all. Um, a, a, an important thing that happens early on in, in the novel is that Peter is briefly suspected of being a, quote, sissy. Yeah, because he's playing with the dollhouse too much. Be yes. Uh, so Sasha... Uh, the queen, um, she comes from a uh, sort of, you know, distant barony or whatever, where she had uh, in her possession a really fantastic dollhouse. And when Roland and she are arranged to be married, he's like, oh, gosh, you know, how do I he, he wants to be a good husband and welcoming. Right. He's he's Roland uh, is in many ways a very bad king, but um, ultimately a good guy. Right. Does not want to make enemies, wants to be friendly and, and so on. Um, so he has commissioned for Sasha the, the most elaborate dollhouse that he uh, can imagine. And so it's this massive thing that has like uh, a little working uh, stove in it and a little working uh, uh, spinning wheel and loom. Um, all the all the little pieces move uh, and she's very moved by this. And then eventually once Peter is born, Peter starts playing with her dollhouse and it becomes like one of his favorite pastimes. And uh, Roland is initially skeptical of this because, again, like he's playing with a, a girl's dollhouse. Uh, and does that make him a sissy? Uh, and turns out, no. Nope. What was the mechanism for that? I can't remember how he gets uh, uh, convinced otherwise. Uh, convinced otherwise uh what that the that it's okay. that the dollhouse is fine <laughs> uh he just uh it, it is internal he makes a call okay. right and this okay. this is valorizing um you know that ultimately roland could make good decisions if he were not weak and actually made his own decisions and so mm -hmm. one of the very few decisions he himself made much like i think building the dollhouse initially um, yes you know those were good he could have been a good king is the thing right that, that mm -hmm. Roland had in him, it's, you know, very schematic and very thin, but I think this is where King, Stephen King, <laughs> does a pretty good job, right? That Roland has two kings within him, right? He has a Thomas mm -hmm. and he has a Peter. And when he mm -hmm. is actually exercising his faculties and trying to think through what it means to be a good person, he is a Peter and he's actually really good. And when he is not doing that, he is thinking, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, he, he's, he's listening to Flag. He's an awful king. <laughs> and so this was a moment, right, where he had an opportunity to be a Peter or a Thomas, and he ends up being a Peter. And that's it. There's mm -hmm. no more mechanism to it. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, there, there's kind of, like, that thread, but it doesn't necessarily go anywhere because, basically, uh, Peter ends up in a position where he is, you know, the model of forbearance and suffering. Uh, this becomes fantasy Shawshank. Yeah, <laughs> 100%. <laughs> Because he's so he's locked in uh, the needle, which is like, again, there's there's like an echo. You can see George R. R. Martin echo this later with um, uh, A Song of Ice and Fire. There's a, a very high tower uh, in those books called the um, the Airy. Uh, that's like a prison uh, that one of the little kingdoms has. Uh, so here we have uh, the needle, this extremely high tower over kind of Delane's main plaza. And at the very top, I don't know if there are other. This is a thing that I was like curious about are there other cells in this tower or did they just build like the highest prison cell possible with just a bunch of stairs anyway peter's at the top yeah i don't think he can look all the way around right <laughs> no i don't think he so can there must be other cells yeah we just don't hear about them 
Yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, Peter's at the top um, and uh, he ends up uh, devising this plan to uh, escape. And how he's going to do this is he makes two requests. One, he would like his mother's dollhouse. And everyone's sort of suspicious of this. They're like, hmm. But uh, they end up going along with it because he is like, you know, royalty or whatever. And they make kind of this sort of exception for him. They go through and they remove all of the sharp objects, all of the things he might use as a weapon. But what they don't remove is the tiny functioning loom. So then Peter, his second request, uh, because of advice his mother gave him when he was very, very small, he always he requests that he always get a napkin with his meal. Uh, because uh, he was he was young and his mom saw him uh, wipe his hands on his clothing at dinner one night and she chastised him for this, uh, saying it was bad manners. And he was like, but, you know, father doesn't use a napkin. Uh, and she was like, well, father is a king and he can do whatever he wants. Um, and then she also makes this point. She has him do, weirdly enough, uh, Fallout New Vegas tie in. She makes him read uh, the word uh, dog. And then like read it backwards and see that it's God. And she's like, every every man has inside him both a dog and a God. And like, you know, you you get to choose between this very, very, uh, you know, Pico della Mirandola like theory of humanism here. Uh, you, you make a choice between, uh, you know, your your baser instinct and your higher instinct. Um, and when you choose your higher instinct, you use a napkin. And so if you want to be a, a boy with good manners, you will always use a napkin. So he starts getting napkins with his meals and then uh, peeling uh, threads out of them, uh, hiding them away. And then over the course of five years, uh, threads all of these napkin fibers together in order to make a rope that he is going to use to escape from the needle. A little, th little thin thread. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, meanwhile, it turns out not to matter. It turns out really not to matter. And also, uh, meanwhile, huge B plot about rebels in the kingdom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because yeah, so so uh, uh, Thomas uh, gets on the throne, a uh, flag immediately, and he's like, uh, gosh, like thirteen or fourteen. He's he's pretty young. Um, and Flag basically becomes his steward and uh, starts running the kingdom in his stead and uh, is like, here, Thomas, like, have some wine. Basically makes him into, like, Roland 2.0, but worse. Yeah. Um, And so Thomas is just, like, spending all of his time zooted uh, and not really caring for things. And uh, while this is happening, Flag is, like, raising all the taxes uh, and just like uh, running state executions constantly, making the, the monarchy extremely unpopular, uh, which results in a lot of discontent uh, and a bunch of the nobility flee into kind of the hinterlands. And that's where a rebel movement starts brewing. Uh, <laughs> they're exiles. Uh, they're not rebels. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, very, very different. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> and we got a lot about Dennis going on here, uh, about mm -hmm. Dennis, the, the butler mm -hmm. who's like, uh, helping us out or, you know, just buttling a word mm -hmm. that gets used 400 times mm -hmm. in this, uh, in this, in this book. But yeah, basically everyone starts being like, Hey, I think Peter might not have killed his dad. <laughs> 
think that if we'd thought about this for more than 18 hours, we would not have convicted him of murdering his dad. Yeah. Uh, I do like that Thomas does, like, outrageous things, like passing an 80% farmer's tax. Yes. They start repatriating all of the lands of the nobles and executing uh-huh. them all. It's just, like, yeah. comical fantasy shit. Right. It's like, like, Flag gets control of the game of Crusader Kings. <laughs> yes, yes. It starts really <laughs> messing it up. Uh, yeah, it is, uh, it's great. And I, but... So here's a question for you. And this, I didn't think this would work on me because I did remember some of the stuff. And by the time we got to the end of the novel, it really did work. So we repeatedly get these sections of like Thomas, because Thomas is treated poorly as a child. Mm -hmm. He's treated Mm -hmm. like crap by his dad, who likes Peter and definitely blames Thomas for his mother dying. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of that. Mm -hmm. And so we get these glimpses of Thomas like over the years, you know, of doing pretty bad stuff. You know, he he, uh, uh, throws rocks and kills a dog, Mm -hmm. you know, and and in that uh, when he's when he's a little kid and in that, you know, King gives this this narration is like, hey, you might think Thomas is like a bad person, but you should really pity Thomas. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's passing all these like later on, he's passing all these laws and Importantly, too, right? Thomas knows he watches Flag kill his father. Yes. And he doesn't reveal that's, that. That's where the title comes yeah, from. He's, <laughs> he's looking through the Scooby-Doo apparatus of the, the eyes of the dragon to spy on his father. And right. It's it's taxidermied and like mounted on the wall. And it turns out that there's like uh, the, the eyes are like glass. And I guess it's suggested that Flag did this. It's not something that Roland designed. No, I, uh, I, I, no one knows who did this. Yeah. But you can like get you get, you go into a secret passage and then you can peer through the eyes of the dragon and see into the king's chambers. And uh, so, you know, Thomas watches his father like be a buffoon and drunk and sad and alone all the time. And then he also watches Flag murder him and he doesn't say anything. He just becomes king um, mm-hmm. and feels deeply regretful from that. We, we get a sense that that's part of his kind of alcoholism is uh, mm-hmm. and his like dependency on a sleeping potion and all this kind of stuff is that he's just racked with guilt around this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so we constantly get this kind of uh, narratorial voice. It's like, hey, you might think Thomas is really bad, but really you should have pity for Thomas. And uh, that really worked on me. I like I really like that narrative turn. That's like, hey, look, he's doing this bad stuff, but look at why he's doing it. And mm-hmm. normally that would not work on me. Normally I'm, I'm pretty resilient to this kind of like bad turn. Uh, I, I don't mm-hmm. I think this is clumsy. I don't think this is a good narrative device. And yet I for for Thomas, it really works out. And uh, for me, and that's kind of astonishing because we lose Thomas as a narrative as a like uh, it's not quite POV, but a character we're focalized on. You know, we, we mm-hmm. get him quite a bit in the first half of the book. But then after he's crowned king, we basically lose him as a focalized mm-hmm. character for 150 pages. Mm-hmm. Uh, he recedes away from the narratorial voice entirely. And I don't know, I, that really, really worked for me. I thought that he was, um, I, I, I thought that was a really kind of special bit of writing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I also think it, it basically works. Um, I think part of part of the reason it does work is because when the narratorial voice comes in and is like, hey, you should pity him. uh it's not incorrect, right? Like this kid has had a hell of a deck stacked against him in terms of like, you know, powers beyond human comprehension, like enlisting him before his birth into this plot to overthrow the kingdom. Yeah. Um, 
And it's pretty sad. And then when we do get back to him, he's basically gone full Lady Macbeth mode uh, mm -hmm. because Flag has gone out to um, with like a, a, a ranger party or whatever to scout for what the exiles are up to. And so Thomas isn't getting his sleeping potions. And it turns out he's sleepwalking and he's sleepwalking and like reliving uh, like his witness of the king's murder every night, which is, you know, uh, uh, Lady Macbeth repeating the murder herself and, you know, saying out damn spot and all that stuff. Um, so like that's where he ends up. Uh, and then we have kind of, you know, the the, the it, there is like a, a good, satisfying, I think, graceful arc for Thomas in that when we when we complete it, uh, he's like, and now I'm going to go find and kill Flag myself. Yeah, it really explodes like bullshit hero's journey stuff. And I really like yes. that. I mean, it is a restoration fantasy at the end of the day. And we can, we'll talk about that in, in just a bit. But uh you know, it ultimately, right, like things have to be made good. But normally, you know, within hero's journey, you know, nonsense, uh, Peter would have to leave. Right. And Thomas yes. would become the good king now. And mm -hmm. it, that's not what happens. Thomas is like, yeah, I think people would kill me if I stayed. <laughs> so yes. I need to leave. <laughs> like people are like I, we all know. The, those of us in this room, we know that I was up to, like, demon-manipulated shenanigans, uh, but the people on the street, they just remember the taxes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they will execute me, so I need to leave. Goodbye. <laughs> and I, I like that a lot. I also think it's funny, uh, you know, something we've talked about a bunch of times on the show, and that I think you and I really hammer on is, like, readers of King, and if there's a thing that people should take from just King things as, as a, a, a project— is that Stephen King, part of his talent as a writer, you know, people love to be like, oh, Stephen King's imagination. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about things that I, I saw in the special features for uh, Graveyard Shift. Uh -huh. <laughs> but uh, it's his imagination. It's his talent as a writer. There's no one that who writes like Stephen King. You know, there's all this kind of like hubbub around King going all the way back to the 70s. But I think a, a critically important thing that we run into all the time, it's that Stephen King is a good remediator of other stuff. Stephen mm -hmm. King is very good. He has a really good kind of remix logic in his head of taking pieces of other stuff and putting it into uh, his kind of genre work. And often that is the mechanisms. We've talked about this a lot, you know, the kind of John Dos Passos in or the uh, mm -hmm. bourgeois noveling of the genre work. He's really good at that. Uh, did you notice the remediated thing in Thomas's story in this book? Uh, which remediated thing? I already said Lady Macbeth. Well, the Lady Macbeth, absolutely. Well, that's, that's the one yeah. that made me think of the much more egregious one that's here. The fact that we get like a whole ass Stephen Crane poem in here. Oh, shit. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have the page number marked out. Uh, I forgot to go and fetch it. But there's a part here where I forget the name. Hold on, I've got it pulled up. Uh, it's the, in the desert is the name of the Stephen Crane poem. Mm -hmm. But Thomas, mm -hmm. in his narration or in the narrator's description of Thomas's feelings, I guess is the best way to put this. He replicates four or five lines from in the desert. Um, yeah, you know, in the desert. Uh, hold on, I'll, I'll read it. People probably will recognize it. Uh, uh, oh, oh, come on, poetryfoundation.org. Give it. Okay, so this is the poem. Uh, uh, please no one get angry at me for, for doing this, uh, you know, owner of the Stephen Crane <laughs> of, uh, uh, library. This is the Stephen Crane poem, In the Desert. 
In the desert, I saw a creature. Uh, that's maybe not the way to read this. Sorry, that's wrong. <laughs> in the desert, I saw a creature, <laughs> naked and bestial, <laughs> who squatting upon the ground. That's not it. <laughs> a meta-traveler from an ancient land. <laughs> uh, hey, Kublai Khan. Uh, <clears throat> okay. Well, what's up with that stately pleasure dome? Oh, you didn't read it yet? He's got a pleasure dome to Kublai Khan. He's eating oh, lotus blooms. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> all right. Steve, Stephen Crane. This is from what? Late 19th century? Uh, uh, yeah, Stephen Crane is like late 19th century, early 20th century. Got it. Okay. Um, uh, American, American poet, mm-hmm. a big, mm-hmm. a big all American weirdo, early modernist poet, right? Is that true? It's been mm-hmm. a while since I took any of these courses. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, early modernist in the sense of just preceding, uh, modernism, the literary movement, or like just on the cusp of it, not early modernist in the way that I tend to use it, meaning, uh, the 16th and 17th century. Yes. Early, uh, ca- uh, low, uh, lowercase E capital M early modernism, not capital yes. E capital M early modernism. Yes. Hey, you ever thought about uh, spending a hundred, a hundred thousand dollars learning how to read? Well, you can do that. <laughs> uh, anyway, okay. <laughs> So this is Stephen Crane in the desert. In the desert, I saw a creature, naked, bestial, who, sw- who, 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 squatting upon the ground, held his heart in his hands, and ate of it. I said, is it good, friend? It is bitter. Bitter, he answered. But I like it, because it is bitter, and because it is my heart. So that's like, you know, a, a powerful Stephen Crane. If you haven't read Stephen Crane's poetry, it's all kind of like this. It's pretty rad. Uh, mm-hmm. It's kind of like all like weird metal art covers. <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, but uh, this gets almost like entirely reproduced in, uh, but with uh, uh, Thomas being the the creature, um, mm-hmm. like all all this like you know it, it talks about Thomas's uh, it he saw that and felt like he was eating his heart and it was bitter, but he liked it because it was his heart. So uh, this is a moment where Stephen King is nakedly bringing in you know capital L literature from, from Mm -hmm. the kind of American um, consciousness and working Mm -hmm. it into his work. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I think this is the same, this is uh, in a slightly different register, but it's the same thing that's happening when, you know, JFK becomes the last gunslinger, right? Like (laughs) there's something going on here where Stephen King is very good at taking these resonant forms and stapling them together into you know, genre ideas. Mm-hmm. Peter escapes. Uh, there's all kinds of like weird B plot stuff that I don't care about, but, and I don't think is particularly interesting. We're like Dennis and Ben Stodd, who we haven't talked about, but uh, Ben Stodd is Peter's best friend and he's like a lower noble. The end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Uh, but they like, they get together with Naomi, who was like a rebel slash exile also, then, uh, she's like she's like a, a, a like a woodsman's daughter or something. Well, uh, well um, the so her her father raises and huskies and he's a lower noble. Oh, OK. Yeah. All right. Yeah, because that was that's her thing is that she like the reason she's there is because it's wintertime and they have to have these sleds. And she's uh, the one who is uh, like running the, the, the dog team. Right. She takes care of all the dogs and like that's her thing. She also smokes a lot of cigars. Yeah, I don't know what's up with that. Uh, she's so like what a only, lovely detail. Yeah, she's like the only like they're called like evil cigars, too. They like hate them. Yeah. No one likes smelling them. But uh, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe they just thought that was cool. Maybe Naomi mm-hmm. was like, I think, Dad, I think the coolest thing you can do is smoke. And Stephen King is like, yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> uh, 
but uh, but uh, <laughs> Naomi, let me tell you about this story. Uh, one story of mine you should read is called Quitters Inc. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway, oh, she, so God. she like shows up, and they all show up, and they go and get these napkins. What do you think about the napkin story that we learn? Um, so Peter is like you know uh, using these napkins every day with his meal, and he's peeling little pieces off of them in order to make his rope to escape with, and it takes multiple years. But we get this explanatory thing going on with the napkins. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that whole thing? This is some of the wildest shit. It really um, is. So Peter is being very, very uh, careful with the threads that he's taking off the napkins because obviously he doesn't want uh, the, um, the the guards to notice that he's like taking threads because otherwise they're going to think he's up to something and they're going to investigate. And he also expects that he's going to get uh, reused napkins. But that does not turn out to be the case it turns out that every time a a napkin is brought to him it's just thrown away afterward because in the storerooms beneath the castle uh there are possibly millions of napkins yeah yeah at least half a million is what yes is what is uh the number quoted to us because uh in the uh, uh distant past uh, or not not terribly distant past um uh, pretty like uh, 400 years ago <laughs> is it for yeah well it's so this is the other th- like the, the the thing is that we're working on a fantasy time scale because flag is involved here because yeah. there's um oh wait it's the so he finds the locket in the wall and that's closer to living memory is that right no this is this is the same time period so oh, it's the same time yeah period. so okay. we we finds a peter finds a locket in the wall and uh, he finds a note from this guy, and it's like a younger, he was like someone who was in line to be king, and mm-hmm. he's not a prince or anything. He's like a noble in a different family or something. But he's supposed to be king, and he gets framed, This and, and Peter's like, oh my god, his name's like Valera or something like that. Uh-huh. And Peter's like, oh my god, this is from 400 years ago. And, mm-hmm. but, and then he finds this letter that's written in um, blood. Yeah, and it, dried blood. It dried blood. And he's like, yeah, I got framed for po- uh, for poisoning my wife and got locked mm-hmm. up. And so, it, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, and it's, it's all written in like the most forced, stilted, like uh, middle <laughs> English style thing like we saw in Jerusalem's Lot, the short story mm-hmm. from Night Shift, where King just cannot write in historical <laughs> prose, but he can try. And this is going to mean like capitalizing a bunch of random nouns and like doing weird phonetic misspellings yeah it's the ye old speech the high speech mm-hmm. uh which uh-huh. shows up again in the dark tower uh, so king really likes this idea of like a language that that the upper class has access to because dennis later on also had read looks at this note and can't read it so there's something really mm-hmm. interesting going on there but uh but yeah so so it says all this and then later what we get is that the person who was because Valera gets like trapped in the needle uh some other guy his name's like Eric the Mad gets mm-hmm. uh crowned king and he is truly mad you know this is like a uh who's the fiddling while Rome burns guy uh uh Nero Nero he's a very that kind of deal right mm-hmm. and he's so he's executing people all the time he's, he's being uh you know zany <laughs> as it were medieval zany. Yeah, yeah and he just by sheer luck gets struck by lightning and killed and his wife is not mad and so she begins to uh she's not mad she's actually laughing she was uh, the whole time too she was yeah. laughing the whole time. 
But she, uh, in, in anyway, so in order to repair all of the problems of, uh, of Eric the Mad or whatever his name was, she basically institutes fantasy New Deal. Yes, and so because that's he, how yeah, we get he, to he, the Madness. He he like ruins the economy, <laughs> yes. and her and her strategy for repairing the fantasy economy is to employ everyone by having them just make napkins. Yeah, just make shit no one needs. Mm-hmm. So there is just an abundance of napkins below the castle. And again, this is evil defeats itself, right? This is all all uh, Valera's imprisonment and all that stuff uh, in his in his letter. He's like, it was flag who did it. I know it was flag. And Peter's like, oh, my God, it was flag. Uh, so, you know, here here flag has laid his own trap that he now falls into uh, where Peter is using these napkins to escape. Um, but then, as I said, uh, it kind of turns out not to matter because uh, he he uh, works together with Dennis and uh, Ben and Naomi, uh, who are all like they're like passing letters back and forth and things uh, like he he tells them that he's going to escape. Uh, he tries to get down the castle. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, the the other party have come up through the castle sewers, so they've passed through the napkin storage facility, um, and they're like, "Oh my God, Peter's going to fall!" So they just take a whole bunch of napkins and like pile them up underneath the prison tower. So when the the rope snaps, Peter falls into this giant pile of uh, divine providence napkins. Yep, and then he's he's good. Uh, at the same time, oh, what's going on? Uh, Oh, I really like the part. This is a little bit uh, earlier, but like Flag is looking for the rebels and uh, Thomas reveals to Dennis, you know, that he knew about his father being dead or, you know, father being killed by Flag. And uh, Flag has a bad dream and it like kills a guy who's sleeping beside him and blinds the other one. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. That's like good, yeah. like what fantasy world? What the hell? Like no explanation to it. Just like magic shit. Deal with it. I think that's great. What do you think about when Flag kind of realizes that everything's closing in on him and his plan is is getting ready to fall apart? Uh, he gets his. So at one point in one of his previous lives, Flag was like the the executioner of Delane. Mm-hmm. Um, and he finds his old executioner axe that he's also had like poisoned or something. Yeah, it's also it's got poison spikes on the top for some reason. Yes. Uh, and, and then he turns into Jack Torrance. Yeah, he just starts screaming and screeching and running around. Right, he's he's like running up that. So as uh, Peter is getting ready to like uh, uh, abscond from the cell at the top of the tower at the top of the needle, um, Flag is coming up the stairs and he's just shouting like, "I'm coming for you, Peter!" Like swinging his axe back and forth, exactly like Jack mm-hmm. uh, uh, running through the overlooks hallways, swinging the rope mallet. Uh, well, as the immortal bard once said, he's running up that building <laughs> with a poison axe in his hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think that's goofy. <laughs> I think that's it's very goofy. It's extremely goofy. He's a magician. <laughs> Why is he doing all this stuff? Uh, yeah, he just becomes like a slasher villain, mm-hmm. and I I think that probably has to do with like one Stephen King not knowing how to end things I think that probably mm-hmm. is involved here and number two it's the young adult thing and so uh, it can't be too complicated here right maybe this mm-hmm. is where we have to talk about the ending of the whole thing because this is a, it's fundamentally a conservative work 
Um, yes. And conservative, maybe not in the big capital C political version, although these two things are related, but it's, it is a fantasy in which the best possible outcome is order being restored. And it's an order that we have seen is like classed, violent. It's one where like the common man is kicked around and the aristocracy get to do whatever the hell they want to do. Right. Like mm-hmm. ultimately it's just like, Hey, Peter's probably going to be a pretty good King. But the world is not going to change in any significant way. In fact, reestablishing the order of class relations and Mm -hmm. making sure the rebellion doesn't take place, that's the most important thing that's happening here. And so, like, yeah, Flag's got to turn into a cartoon villain so he can be defeated by the golden-hearted, you know, um, uh, maneuvers of Peter and Thomas at the end. And, you know, that's just what's got to happen. And, like, that's it. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it's the whole ending is disappointing in a lot of ways i think because mm-hmm. it doesn't even like uh you know move into we don't get like oh there was a golden age and like things got better for everyone it's like i guess that 80 percent tax is going to be repealed maybe i don't know like <laughs> he'll be a little bit of a better king everyone dollhouses for everyone <laughs> like i don't <laughs> i don't know yeah i i mean it's it's the you know, one of the things that i think maybe that really riles me about fantasy as i'm reading this when i'm uh, a young person who for whatever reason has always been very strongly anti-monarchist uh-huh. <laughs> like i don't know how this came to me but i have just i have never liked like i have never uh sort of uh liked stories about good kings because i don't think there's such a thing um and so the way that this uh thing really kind of leans into the fantasy of uh, like the, the the fantasy fantasy, right? The fantasy genre fantasy of like, yes, there there is just there can be a good king. There will be a good monarchy. There is a good kind of feudal order which can exist into perpetuity that everyone like, uh, you know, the Hobbitian uh, merry old England kind of thing. Of course, that's not exactly the tone that's happening here uh, with with Delane. Um, but fundamentally, right, the this is a fantasy world and for it to continue to exist uh, a monarchy must also exist. Yeah, it's like that's part of the fantasy universe. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I, well, at least you know, at least Tolkien had the uh, uh, the foresight to get rid of all those elves at the end, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, there's an age of man coming. Yep. And this is like, no, like we're going back to the eternal present right now. Yeah, into history, buddies. The whole it's into history like four years too soon. <laughs> that was yeah i it, when i was i read lord of the rings uh in the hobbit and stuff before this in the hobbit i could sort of give or take but i got uh there was lots of stuff i really liked about lord of the rings um and one of the things i did like was like oh okay the monarchy got restored and also like uh now begins the age of ultimate depression <laughs> <laughs> things aren't as good anymore <laughs> right <laughs> like uh we we did the good thing but guess what like <laughs> things still suck yeah at what cost right uh but but yeah i think you know the ending is uh whatever and you know the king is is constrained by form in two ways both that he is himself and that you know his imagination of what a fantasy novel is is pretty delimited i would say mm-hmm. um but uh I, yeah, I guess that's kind of the novel. I, I really liked it. I, I thought it was... Uh, I wouldn't put this in my like top... Even top 10, but this is like dead in the middle of mm-hmm. the running so far. And I'm sure that for our two-year anniversary, we will rank every uh, every book we've read so far. But uh, 
you know, that's six months away. Mm -hmm. I don't like this book. I don't recommend you read it. Pass on it. That's Michael's take. I think that if you are, uh, I, I think my um, recommendation here will be a qualified one. Uh, if you can read a fantasy novel pretty quick, then you should, maybe not should read it, but could read it. Mm -hmm. If it takes you a long time to read a fantasy novel, you know, for various reasons, right? Some people read certain genres faster than the others. I probably wouldn't read this because mm -hmm. like, something that you've kind of continually pointed out, right? It's a young adult novel that is roughly 200% longer than any other young adult novel mm -hmm. for no reason. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's a lot of like just uh, fluff here <laughs> that that like is sometimes really great and, and that I enjoy, uh, you know, as like all this constant backfilling of world building information and stuff. But for the most part, it's the same like five people having the same five emotions over and over again in like a roundabout <laughs> circle. And uh, mm -hmm. if you can't get through that pretty quickly, I think this would be basically torture to read. So mm -hmm. uh, that's my that's my qualified recommendation. Uh, something that I want to talk about, actually, just here before we jump into segments um, is just some of the things that are happening, at least on the cover of uh, my edition of the novel, specifically kind of like blurbs and copy in, in the way that this is trying to sell this book to a Stephen King readership. Mm hmm. So here's the here's the uh, quote uh, above Stephen King's name on the on the front. Uh, actually, this is <laughs> this is not a quote. This is just copy the ultimate in evil enchantment. And then the quote under that is compelling his most powerful storytelling. And that's a quote from the Atlanta Journal Constitution. But notice how uh, the ultimate and evil enchantment, we have to phrase this or like frame it in a way to, to make you think of Stephen King. So we've got evil going on. Then on the back, it says, and this is before the um, back cover description. Once upon a time, there was terror. <laughs> So again, uh, how do you frame this to sell it to a Stephen King audience that's expecting a horror novel? Well, you just lie on the cover. On <laughs> because both covers. this is <laughs> this is this is not uh, in any way like close to being a horror novel. It is almost just barely edging into what we might call dark fantasy territory. Um, and most of, I think, what its dark fantasy characteristics can be explained by the way that it handles low fantasy, right? Because mm -hmm. there's just something kind of a little gritty and grim about it. Uh, but <laughs> I just love the once upon a time there was terror. Yeah, that's I, I, and this is something that's really interesting, I think, and something we've brought up a few times that for the the majority of the novels that we have read from Stephen King at this point are not horror novels. No, they're not just really. not. And they're not really even scary. You no, know, like the majority of them are just kind of like middle of the road science fiction novels that have bad things happening to people. But mm -hmm. they're they're not horror novels. And so the it, it really is interesting to me that the Stephen King as as of like this point, you know, the mid 1980s. The Stephen King, like, shockmeister, <laughs> the horrormeister, uh, all that kind of stuff, that, that's, that's almost entirely a PR development. Mm -hmm. and, and it has to do with, like, the mechanics of the publishing industry. You can't sell him as a, like, author, just broadly, right? He has to be, like, a mm -hmm. type of author, type of genre author, and he's a horror author. And that's not to say that his books aren't scary sometimes. And the ones that have the most 
external facingness to them, right? Uh, you know, the shining carry, that kind of thing. Those are uh, horror adjacent, at least. Um, but, you know, I don't think you watch that Kubrick film. And, and if you're if you're not told this is a horror film, I don't know if you experience it as a horror film, right? It's more of a thriller. Same with Carrie. So I, you know, I, I'm very curious. I, I think maybe somewhere in here I would like to go and read more stuff about, like, the Kingian moment. Because mm-hmm. it really, it's hard to put together from what we know at this point in time in these books themselves. Mm-hmm. Like, what? what is the, is it just like a PR genius move to be like, all right, they all have some scary stuff in them, so let's make him a scary guy. Hey, speaking of The Shining and weird genre stuff, Michael jumping back in through the edit with some exciting news. For one week, starting on February 26th of this year, 2022, the Ellie Calkins Opera House in Denver, Colorado will be staging an opera adaptation of The Shining with music by Paul Moravec and a libretto by Mark Campbell. If that sounds interesting to you and you're in the area, you can head to operacolorado.org right now and purchase tickets, being sure to enter the promo code KINGTHINGS, all one word, for a discount. And if you happen to go to the performance on the evening of Thursday, March 3rd, well, you may hear a couple of familiar voices in the audience, probably getting yelled at because people don't want us talking during the show. That's right, Cameron and I will be there to experience the joy of Stephen King as he meets live musical theater. And even if you can't make it, don't worry, we'll be sure to tell all our dear listeners about it later. But if you can come, we look forward to seeing you. And just as a reminder, that's operacolorado.org with the promo code KINGTHINGS. Um, and maybe it's, maybe it's a knockover, from, knockover effect from all the other movies, too, you know, because this point, we got a bunch mm-hmm. of these De Laurentiis movies, so... I don't know. I'm wondering if the thriller uh, generically at this time, insofar as it might exist, um, is maybe somehow exclusive of fantastic elements in like whether that's sort of science fiction or straight up like supernatural horror. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what makes Stephen King land in kind of uh, the horror space from the popular perspective. Yeah, because I guess the political thriller really well, I, I Michael Crichton's going at this point, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. But that's also, Crichton is, like, much harder on the science angle, right? That's His techno true. thrillers are very technical, and that's not exactly what King's up to. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. Well, mm-hmm. anyway. You got a favorite uh, Kingism? This is a section, uh, segment on the show where we talk about the, uh, the most... Stephen King ass thing in a book. Mm-hmm. And it uh, looks like you got one here marked out. Yeah. Um, I hate this part. <laughs> My favorite Kingism is a thing that I hate. Uh, it's it's about the narrative voice and uh, how that whole thing works. So this happens just after. Uh, well, it, it's, it's like happening just after Roland's death. Uh, people immediately begin plans to coronate Peter. Um, and then uh, Flag's kind of little trap that he set where Dennis the butler finds uh, the remnants of the poison and, and, and uh, this all brings suspicion on Peter. All that stuff is getting ready to happen. Um, <clears throat> but Delane had for years and even centuries been an ordered and orderly place. So perhaps they were spoiled. This is about how people like, you know, didn't didn't expect uh, the, the terror that was to come. 
That black day really began when Peter was not crowned at noon and ended with the stunning news that he was to be tried in the Hall of the Needle for the murder of his father. If Delane had had a stock market, I suppose it would have crashed. <laughs> yeah. This is just so stupid. It's so, it's so dumb. Like, oh, like I'm telling you a story about this fantasy world and to help you understand the stakes of the king not being crowned, I'm going to like reference the contemporary stock market. This is based on a memory, and I've not revisited this book in indefinitely at least 10 years. So uh, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but isn't one of his like hard rules in on writing not to do this? Uh, in what sense? I don't remember. I think, is he? Is it not in that book? It, it might be another like one to of, not mention the stock market. Is mention, that one of the rules? Never in mention the stock market. You don't talk about politics or religion or in a fancy <laughs> novel. Talk about the stock market crashing. We all know that. That's basic <laughs> Mainer etiquette. Uh, no, uh, it, it might be because I read a bunch of those like how to write books. You know, like how to write mm-hmm. genre books all in the same time when I was like in college. So I read like on writing. I read Ray Bradbury's book. I read Orson Scott Card's book. Um, you know, uh, which people is, who really know how to write. People who really know how to write. People who are just geniuses at writing. I didn't know that at the time. I don't. I <laughs> weirdly enough, I don't think I I I read Ender's Game in middle school and did not know anything else about Orson Scott wow. Garden when I read that book. Uh, and then afterward, I was like, I, and actually, while here's a little bit of a anti recommendation: do not read Orson Scott Card's uh, book on writing, which is, uh, you know. He politically vile, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, 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 truly awful beliefs about like the world and uh, dude, dude sucks. Uh, but the the other thing is his book on writing is terrible. It is basically just a list of like things that happen in fantasy and science fiction and other books that have used those things. It's like a weird index. It's very bizarre. Weird. It, it's really weird. Uh, but I'm pretty sure. It might be from Ray Bradbury's book, so I could be wrong. But I think in On Writing, you know, the famous advice is like cut all your adverbs or whatever. Uh, But I think one of the pieces of advice is do not use metaphors that a character would not understand. Mm -hmm. And I think he uses the thing of like something moving as fast as a speeding train if trains Mm -hmm. don't exist in the world. Maybe Mm -hmm. that's not from Stephen King. But it's really weird because this whole book is full of that. It's full of like using metaphors from our world to explain things in this fantasy world. And I think it's Stephen King's own advice. I could be wrong. Someone, someone can Mm -hmm. correct me on that and I will not acknowledge it. And I'll pretend that it doesn't happen. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, it's, it's, that is extremely goofy. And I also, I laughed out loud when I was reading that myself. Um, my, uh, my part is something we've actually already talked about, which itself is kind of a re- remediation of the stand, but it's when, uh, uh, Peter, uh, discovers the locket in, mm. in the letter and the letters like flag, like it's when the character understands that like flag is this like big eternal evil. Um, uh, but, it, and it's very similar to like Wendy, you know, um, mm. learning all the stuff about the, uh, the overlook. Mm-hmm. Very much just a replication. I mean, I think what we're seeing, it, it, this book is, like I said at the beginning of the episode, we're seeing a lot of stuff that's to come in King, and we're seeing this kind of remix imagination that we really saw over the last couple books, especially Christine, is like, a lot of these ideas, we've been there before, and we're going to go to them like four or five more times. I think uh, Stephen King's new and unique ideas are going to get real thin over the next decade. Mm-hmm. 
and then I think they'll come back, weirdly enough. I think I think once we get to like the late nineties, early two thousands, even though I don't know if those books are necessarily as strong, like book for book, I do think that we get at least new stuff to think about. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, that'll be interesting. Uh, so the next segment is What in the Kingiverse, which is the segment where we outline connections between whatever we've just read and the uh, King continuity writ large, um, you know, implicit, explicit things touching on maybe some Kingy and echoes that we haven't mentioned before, uh, because we've already kind of covered a lot of the stuff here, right? Flag shows up uh, as an evil magician in a fantasy world. He's already been the main antagonist of The Stand in a very different kind of uh, uh, contemporary dark fantasy environment uh we have uh roland as the king kind of echoing uh roland the gunslinger delane and just jane uh one thing here that i did not mention uh is that there's a, a bit where i think it's maybe the night when uh sasha gives birth to thomas and is murdered there's like a, a storm or like a, a you know a winter wind that comes over delane uh, and, uh, the narrator says that, you know, uh, children or like, uh, uh, mothers told their children that, uh, uh, the witch Rhiannon of the Kuos, uh, was writing that night. And we are going to, uh, hear more about her later on in a different Dark Tower story. Um, we're also going to see, not see, um, but we're going to hear whispers of Delane again in, in some future Dark Tower works, uh, mm-hmm. particularly, um, the novella, The Little Sisters of Illyria. Yeah, there's some other stuff too. Uh, Garland, uh, which is like where Flag is is reputed to have come from. Garland's like its own place in the Dark Tower. Uh, in the dark... actually, a lot of this stuff comes back in the fourth book because Rhea of the Coos mm-hmm. also. It's not Rhiannon, yeah. but but it's a similar kind of character. Um, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, the Witch of the Coos. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so yeah, I don't. You know, I it, it's. It's it's very interesting to me that this book has not gotten a re- kind of a revision of any sort to like bring that in relationship to one an- with one another, and that to me signals that well, one king doesn't care, <laughs> which could be part of it. <laughs> right. I think he gets bored of that kind of thing pretty quickly. Hence, why the gunslinger got revised and none of the other books did. Um, you know, so there's that. But then there's also that I I really do think that this like echo or like badly told story is involved here like the narrator is its own person and so some of these like quote-unquote facts if we want to like pretend that there's some sort of like fantasy truth you know in the Mm -hmm. dark tower universe that these are not exactly right you know that they they don't really attach up but but yeah there's some other stuff uh that's that's here too that i'm sure that we will talk about when we get to the appropriate places in the dark tower books Mm -hmm. um then one other uh small detail i noticed is that during peter's trial uh they decide on a judge by having them do a lottery they draw stones out of a a, you know hamper or something uh and it's black and white stones and i think it's who whichever judge draws the black stone has to be uh peter's uh trial judge Mm -hmm. um this idea of a lottery of black and white stones is going to show up again uh far far in the future in a storm of the century Mm. I don't know, Jack Squattery about the lottery. <laughs> the uh, does a dollhouse show up again? I'm not going to say no because there might be something I'm forgetting, but nothing quite as central here. Yeah, I can't. I can't think of it. It feels like a, like a Stephen King image that should show up again. You know, it has like mm-hmm. all these kind of resonance to it, but I, I also can't 
can't mm-hmm. you know place it. I, here's a question for you. To, to, you know, if you um, ran into this, why is this dedicated to Ben Straub? I don't know. I could not find that out. And I assume that's Peter Straub's son. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. The story is from our great friend Ben Straub and from my daughter, Naomi King. Naomi and Ben get together at the end of the novel. Mm hmm. Oh, that's true. What? The ultimate the ultimate power team. (laughs) The (laughs) ultimate power couple uh, only fouled by the reality of, of Naomi King's sexuality. Right. Yeah. If you don't know Naomi King, she uh, uh, she is a Unitarian minister and uh, uh, LGBTQ activist. Uh, I do not know the specifics of her orientation, but uh, I get the sense that she has been largely in relationships with women um, for for a a lot of her adult life. So that's, you know, how that turned out. Um, Yeah. Her her fictional version gets into a, a restorationist heterosexual relationship at the end. Uh, and then, you know, the we normally finish up with another segment called Uncle Stevie's Mixtape, where we talk about songs that were mentioned. None of those here. No one in Delane listens to uh, Ease On Down the Road, unfortunately, <laughs> or, yeah. or Hey Jude. It, it is interesting that, yeah, there's not even like a like a made up song. Yeah. Hmm. You would think that Steve wouldn't be able to help it. I, I was expecting it, right? I had, like, my eagle eyes. I was, like, looking for where he was going to, like, make up his own little, like, hobbity folk song or something. Yeah. And it just never came. To the to the tune of, of Love Gun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, just... <laughs> Uh, and then, like Ben and Naomi got married, and everyone danced to, to, to Detroit Rock City. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's a little bit of a not spoilers, but just something that happens in the later Dark Tower books is that you know there's all this like multiverse kind of stuff going on, and one of the things is like music from our world shows up in these you know in in the this fantasy world, mm-hmm. and uh, and so but it's like you know characters recognize music, and so at one point I think it, it it's like. It is Detroit Rock City or something like that. It might be Love Gun, actually, but yeah. <laughs> it's just like some '80s hair metal, and uh, but like you know, when I'm reading those novels, I'm like 11 years old, you know, and <laughs> and the characters just say the the lyrics, you know, because it's like one of the characters and he's like singing along, and he's like, I know this song, and he's like, and, but it's just the lyrics to it, and I was like, what kind of wild me this couldn't be real like in my mind i'm like this is made up this can't be real and lo and behold like motley crew like wrote this song in the 80s that you know that i find out later in my life and so like in my mind i was like wow stephen king is making up music what can't he do (laughs) you know he's just writing down songs (laughs) just the popular music of the time uh michael what are we doing next time what's the next episode about uh, the next episode, we are dipping into the fantasy bucket again uh, on a much, uh, on a much, much longer Yay! scale with uh, 1984 again, 1984's The Talisman, co-written with Peter Straub. But you like this one, right? Uh, I like it well enough. I did not uh, go hard for it when I read it when I was younger, precisely because, like, I did not care about the, like... It's a weird thing where, like, the kind of setup to the talisman Mm -hmm. is something I think is really interesting, but the blow-by-blow fantasy stuff, like, I do not care about. I just don't. (laughs) Um, 
And uh, this is kind of a problem with me uh, with all of kind of the the closer the stuff that's closer to the Dark Tower. Um, this is a problem that I have with that up until the Dark Tower starts getting finished. Yeah, it's uh, the, the, whereas this is like a straight up fantasy novel, uh, you know, just to give people an entree into it. The Talisman is a portal fantasy. You know, so it's mm-hmm. someone coming from our world and go into a different world. And I think that really does set up some some different stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. I have not reread the Talisman since I read it the first time, like a million years ago. And so I'm very curious to to check that out. Uh, I read it, you know, at some point and then I read Black House when it came out. And mm-hmm. uh, that that's my only stuff there. And so uh, more Dark Towery kind of connection stuff. But again, like you were saying, kind of echoey, not quite um, not quite there. And uh We'll we'll learn more about that next month. So, Cameron, uh, as we as we bid goodbye to everyone else for a month, uh, as I have to once again lock you in in the cell at the top of the needle mm-hmm. and you set to work uh, spinning all of your threads together in hopes of eventual escape. Mm-hmm. Uh, what keeps you going? What's the memory that uh, lets you know that everything you do, it's not in vain? Why are you doing it? Well, uh, primarily, I'm looking for Dr. Aegon. Mm-hmm. And uh, secondarily, I'm doing it for Steve! Steve!